Hello everyone, my name is Liam and I'm delighted to be delivering this week's podcast with my colleague Erica. And so this week's podcast is all about doing criminological research and I'm going to begin by examining the three key methods in research and these are qualitative, quantitative and mixed methods approaches. And later, Erica will take us through key criminological theoretical frameworks where we can begin to see where particular research methods can be applied. Now, although qualitative and quantitative sound similar, they are in fact very different. When developing a methodology, you are drawing upon the aims and objectives of your research, which will determine which approach you take. And there are debates held within social researchers, such as criminologists, as to which method, either qualitative or quantitative, is best suited to understanding the social world. And this uh, debate is more commonly known as the qual versus quant debate. And I do hope that by the end of this podcast, um, you've been enabled to make an informed informed choice as to which methods resonates best with you. It is important to remember, however, that it does not have to be a case of either or. There are cases of criminological research in which it's necessary to use both qualitative and quantitative methods, and this is called a mixed methods approach. But for now, let's explore the qual versus quant debate in some more depth. So, The debate between qual and quant is often steered by how people see the social world. For example, quantitative methods used in social sciences have been obtained from methods used in the physical sciences to understand the properties of the natural world. A quantitative approach is predicated upon the concept that the world has a physical reality and all phenomena contained within that physical reality is therefore measurable and can be quantified. Quantitative approaches are often driven by the idea that if you conduct an experiment, it will always yield the same result, or nearly will always yield the same result, I should say. And these approaches are typically undertaken within psychology and strands of sociology and indeed criminology. Alternatively, a qualitative approach has been founded within anthropology studies and dominated within sociological inquiry. Qualitative social researchers are concerned with understanding the social world in which people live and how these social, cultural, political and economic nuances might shape those attitudes and behaviours. Data is often gathered from participants and researchers who extrapolate key data by observing and listening to people within their own environments and social contexts. Now, all of these assumptions and stances are based upon our individual ontology and epistemology. Now, simply, ontology simply means the way in which we view the social world and what we assume can make up the nature and reality of social experiences and phenomena within the social world. And epistemology asks what can be known about the social world and how can we come to an understanding? In in essence, epistemology is a theory of knowledge production. So an example of an epistemological position is subjectivism, whereby as a researcher, we're interested in people's subjective experiences and views on particular matters. 
So now we can begin to match epistemological stances to quantitative and qualitative methods of research. So quantitative research often adopts a, pos a positivist epistemology. And positivism is a theory driven by hard data, hard facts and a reality which is measurable, fixed and understood through methods used commonly within natural sciences. Meanwhile, qualitative research methods are primarily concerned with stories, accounts, narratives, subjectivity, cultural nuances, understandings, feelings, opinions and beliefs. And these factors take shape as an interpretivist epistemology, whereby the researcher interprets attitudes, beliefs and structures which people hold within their social and learning environments. And of course, as a researcher, you can, you can take a mixed methods approach which leans on both positivism and interpretivism, depending on what your research uh, outcomes are meant to be. So to recap and aid further discovery of quantitative versus qualitative, I'm going to go into a bit more depth and list some of the key points. So in quantitative, as I've just said, ontological and epistemological approaches are, are mainly positivist, which assumes that the social world is real. Research questions are often laid out as experiments, tests and hypotheses. And the research question can be answered by quantifying events and using statistical analysis. And the researcher normally knows what they're looking for. The research design or strategy is usually predetermined before data collection. And you could argue that the researcher is detached and separate from the research, thus making it an objective study. Tools such as questionnaires and surveys are often used to collect data and data is often represented through the use of numbers. And lastly, it is possible to generalise from the data. So now what about the key characteristics of qualitative research? Well, first, ontological and epistemological approaches uh, are largely interpretivist. This assumes that reality is socially constructed. Research questions may be developed from previous research questions. And the research questions can be answered by describing or explaining events and gathering participants' understandings, beliefs and experiences. The researcher usually has an idea of what they're looking for. And the research design and strategy is not fixed and can change and evolve. The researcher is involved in the research process and in some cases such as ethnographic research, partaking in the day-to-day -day lives of those at the centre of the research is fundamental. So this then makes the research subjective and usually there is no use of tools because the researcher is the main instrument in which the data is collected. And data may also take any shape. And lastly, it's not usually possible to generalise from the data, thus you could argue making it more specific and nuanced. So I hope by this stage, uh, you have an understanding of the differences between quantitative and qualitative research methods. So let's start by looking at where they might be applied and we can begin by looking at research around mental health. Qualitative researchers can understand enablers of positive mental health through listening to people talk about issues within their own social world. 
and often this involves understanding of the social, the economic, the cultural and the political processes and functions which can affect mental health both positively and negatively. Qualitative researchers can use questionnaires and surveys to understand these factors both held within the individual and driven by external forces out of the control of the individual. A key example here is government policies such as the austerity programme brought in by the coalition in 2010. And this approach can also help for researchers to identify key themes or areas which the research should prioritise its attention. Equally though, quantitative researchers can also use questionnaires and surveys, but the responses would be numbered instead of completed by sentences. And quantitative data can help for researcher to identify small groups of people who either are different or stand out or particularly um, significant for the outcome of the research. And this would determine where the research takes its focus. And another key difference between quantitative and qualitative approaches is the way in which data is collected and structured and who leads that process. Quantitative approaches gather and work with data which is structured, categorised or coded so it, so it can be quantified. This whole process is structured and led by the researcher. The researcher determines the set of questions and types of answer that can be given. A classic example being survey tick boxes. Meanwhile, qualitative approaches gather and analyse data that is constructed by the research participants in their own subjective way. This data is then inter interpreted by the researcher as part of a data analysis stage. Examples of methods are semi-structured or unstructured interviews, which you could argue enables research participants to talk more freely about a set of questions or topics in a way that is subjective and meaningful for them. So in this podcast, I've outlined the quantitative versus qualitative debate, the key theories of knowledge or epistemologies, and how research methods are determined by both the researcher's philosophy of knowledge production and the intended outcomes of the research. Thank you all for listening to this part. And if anyone does have any questions, uh, please don't hesitate to drop me an email at liam.miles at mail.bcu.ac.uk. I'm now going to hand you over to my fantastic colleague, Erica, who's going to go with you through with you theories of criminological inquiry and how they uh, shape to uh, research. So, Erica, over to you. Thank you very much, Liam. Hello, everyone. This is Erica. In the first part of this podcast, Liam has guided you through some of the key components of criminological research. In any discipline, there are two critical features, and these are the theory and the methodology or research methods. In this section of the podcast, we will examine and explore the role that theoretical frameworks play in research. So generally speaking, theories address the question of why and how and involve the attempt to develop reasonable explanations of reality, as well as explain the essential element of the subject in question. When we speak of theoretical framework, however, we refer to the structure that can hold or support a theory of a research study. This framework introduces and describes the theory that explains why the research problem under study exists in the first place. 
Within criminology studies, there is an extensive amount of theories available, which aim is to help one gain an understanding of crime and criminal justice. With regards of this podcast, we will, explore three, we will explore three theories and look at how this can be employed when conducting criminological research. Let's start with cultural criminology, probably one of my favorite. This theory has been generated by Federal in 1999, and it explores the many ways in which cultural dynamics intertwine with the practices of crime and crime control in contemporary society. So put differently, cultural criminology emphasizes the centrality of meaning and representation in the construction of crime as a momentary event, subcultural endeavor and social issue. This wider cultural focus allows scholars and the public alike to better understand crime as a meaningful human activity and to penetrate more deeply the contested politics of crime control. Now, let's use an example to understand how this theory could be used. In one of my recent research, my aim was to answer the question, how are media narratives and perceptions around far-right terrorism constructed in Saudi Arabia and the United States? My research in this case adopted the perspective of cultural criminology to engage with analysis and explanation of the result generated. This means that the assumptions the media institutions are deeply affected by cultural processes that redefine the meaning of crimes and therefore portray them in such a manner as to produce less or more concern of them served as a base to my theoretical framework. As the aim of the research can only exist if we conceive frames and labels as socially constructed, the theory I chose in this case resulted the most suitable for the nature of the project, as it took into account all those elements related to cultural construction of terrorism. The second theory is narrative criminology. Narrative criminology is an emergent theoretical framework for the study of, steer, of, uh, of stories in criminology. It basically is interested in how collective and personal narratives instigate, sustain, and affect desistance from harmful actions. In basic terms, it highlights the importance of stories and more specifically seeks to understand how offenders, victims, and policymakers represent crime through spoken and visual mediums. So when it comes to applying this concept to research, one may, one may focus on a particular aspect of narrative criminology, perhaps how stories told by offenders contributed their desistance from crime, or on the other hand, to, to repeat criminal behavior. Researchers can do so by conducting interviews, for example. So considering that stories are much more than, meaning, than means of communications, stories help us to shape our identities, make sense of the world, and mobilize others to action. In narrative criminology, prominent scholars from across the academy and all around the world examine stories that animate offending, from an examination of how criminals understand certain type of crime to be less moral than others, to how violent offenders and drug users come to understand or resist their identity as criminals, a concept that is very deeply analyzed within the labelling theory perspective. Let's now examine symbolic interactionism. Symbolic interactionism is a theoretical approach that can be used to explain how societies and social groups come to view behaviors as deviant or conventional. Labelling theory, uh, differential associations, social disorganization theory, and control theory fall within the realm of symbolic interactionism. The theory basically says that 
people assign symbols and create meanings based on their interactions with one another. This, perspe- this perspective, in fact, views society as a product of everyday social interactions between individuals. For example, we know that a green light symbolizes that we have permission to go. We attach the meaning go because others in our society told us and showed us that, what, that that's what the green light means. We learn that behavior from our interactions with others in our society. What's important to realize, however, is that our meanings are often subjective. We behave based on what we believe to be true rather than what is objectively true. I'm going to use cigarette as an example here. Objectively, research shows that smoking is dangerous and unhealthy. However, some young people subjectively attach a symbol that smoking is cool and presents a positive image to their peers. They chose to smoke based on the subjective belief that smoking is a desirable behavior rather than on the objective evidence that smoking is harmful. We need to keep in mind that the way in which different social actors interpret the behavior of, um, of others is significant as a means of understanding the way in which the world is socially constructed. The social construction of the world is focused upon the meanings people give to behavior and the way in which they interpret the meaning of behavior. Um, a simple example here might be, let's say we were standing at some traffic lights waiting to cross the road. If we see the car, if we see a car go through a red traffic signal, we might interpret that behavior as wrong because it's dangerous um, or illegal because it breaks the law. If, however, the car that races through the red light as a flashing blue light and a siren, we might interpret that behavior as understandable and necessary, given that we assume that police officers in the car have a very good reason for acting both dangerously and illegally. Hopefully this example has given you a better understanding. We have now reached the end of the podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it and perhaps you will engage with further readings on any of the topics discussed today. Next week's podcast will be about the history and future of security studies with Caitlin, Matthew and myself again. If it sounds like something you could be interested in, don't forget to check the episode out.